Imagine you have a choice. On the one hand, you can follow your heart and provide for your family. And on the other, you can pursue your biggest dream in life. What would you choose? And more importantly, how could you choose? Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author C.L. Polk. Their latest novel is The Midnight Bargain, a standalone Silver Fork fantasy novel from Erewhon Books. C and I talk about adding emotional churn to your writing, the big, gorgeous dresses of 18th century fashion, and her time as a TV extra. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and jump right into the interview. C.L. Polk, welcome to the Fantasy Inn. I'm so glad you were able to come on the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, well, so in your About page, you list some pretty fascinating past jobs, uh, including spending time as a film extra. How exactly did that come about? Um, That came about, I was living in Vancouver in the 90s, and a friend of mine who was trying very hard to break into the film industry was actually working as a background performer. And he went to his agents to pick up a paycheck. And I went with him. And the agent kind of stopped and was like, you, do you have an agent? I was like, no. She was like, standing at this wall. She took a (laughs) Polaroid picture of me on the spot. And she called me the next day for um, a job as background performer for a TV show called The Sentinel. (laughs) That is Um, so cool. It was it was a lot of fun. Um, the worst part of being an extra is getting up really early in the morning so that you can be in the studio for seven o'clock in the morning, and then you sit down in extras folding and they feed you junk food and you play cards with the continuity extras and get to know people and you have time to read and every once in a while you have to walk onto the set and pretend to be talking. You can't actually make any noise um, when you're recording, so you have to. You have to pretend to talk. And so, like, I was in a lot of police station scenes, either as somebody who was, like, making a complaint to the police or somebody who got arrested. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. I... My big goal was to actually be on the X-Files. And while I got called onto the X-Files set three times, I never actually made it onto an episode. And I was very, very sad. Oh, that would have been so cool. Is there, like, a a favorite extras memory you had like a favorite show you were on or just a really cool scene i remember there was a time that i got something called silent on camera it was for the sentinel again basically it was the episode where an armored car blows the doors off and then all of this money comes flying out into a low-income neighborhood and people are like picking up all the money and i got an soc as somebody who brought her little brother to return the money like i don't even know like don't ask me you've got money (laughs) flying through the air and you pick it up it's yours but apparently my character was very principled and so i handed over money to the guy who was like the main character of the Sentinel, who looked at it with his special senses and realized that the money was counterfeit, that there had already been a heist and that the money in the armored truck that was going to the incinerator was actually fake and they had stolen the real money. Do, do, do. I got paid like $400 for a day's work. I was happy. Oh, that's awesome. 
Um, so I also coming through your bio, I noticed that it says you drink good coffee because life is too short. As another coffee enthusiast, what's your preferred way of drinking it? Um, my preferred way of drinking it is to do uh, coffee that is light roasted. I have a coffee place in Edmonton that I subscribe to and they mail me a couple of bags of coffee a month. So I burr grind it to a very coarse consistency and then I just do it in a French press because I don't have time to mess around with pour over. I got a pour over coffee maker for a friend of mine and it takes like 10 minutes. I cannot wait. <laughs> yeah, I will say that's the reason why my go-to method is uh, instead of a French press, my AeroPress because I just pop it in, I get exactly one cup of coffee and it takes like two minutes flat. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, actually going on into interview proper here, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Um, well, I mean, when I was a kid, we used to watch Star Trek, the original series, reruns on television. I don't think I was reading much science fiction and fantasy at that time. I think the closest I came was The Last of the Really Great Wang Doodles by Julie Andrews. Yes, that Julie Andrews. Um, and I didn't actually get into science fiction and fantasy until... I remember there was a book, and I don't remember the title of the book, but it was by an Australian author about a girl who needed to have a piece of her brain transplanted so that she could see. And it turned out that the piece of her brain um, that was transplanted in came from a revolutionary, so she started a revolution in her dystopian society. Huh. And I don't know. At that point, I was like, you know, what have I missed? And somebody said, you missed A Wrinkle in Time. So I read that. And then somebody said, you missed The Chrysalids by John Wyndham. And I read that. And um, and then I realized that C.S. Lewis Narnia series counted as fantasy. And I just kept going. I started to read Anne McCaffrey. And then in high school, I discovered Mercedes Lackey and Tanith Lee at the same time and loved them both, even though they're very, very different authors. And I just kind of kept going from there. I, I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of boys who wanted me to read science fiction, really, really wanted me to read science fiction. And so I wound up reading William Gibson's Neuromancer, that whole trilogy with Count Zero and Mona Lisa Overdrive, um, and liked it well enough. I read, um, Thomas M. Dish's Camp Concentration, which is not cheerful at all. It, it does not sound cheerful with that it, title. It is not cheerful at all. Just, you know, letting people know. I thought it was a really good book, but man, it was very sad. And um, yeah, I just kind of kept going at that point. Most of the stuff that I read, like Barbara Hambly and Naomi Kritzer and Let's see. I got into a little bit more science fiction with like old John Barley stuff from the 70s and early 80s, which I really appreciated. You know, Kim Stanley Robinson, who writes these absolutely wonderful characters that have like really interesting dynamics and conflicts with each other. Charles DeLint. I went on a Charles DeLint kick for a couple of years there. And now I spend a lot of time being kind of guilty over the fact that I have all of these books to read and not enough time to read them. Yes. Uh, as a blogger who receives review copies in the mail, I know how that is. Uh, but I'm also glad that this is a recording and I can go back and listen through all of your recommendations again, because a lot of those I have not heard of before. Yeah, these. this is all like old stuff from like the 70s, 80s and 90s. 
I've I've read some of the classics, but a lot of them didn't stick. Like I mean, I read Dune, but mm, I I have strong feelings about Dune. <laughs> <laughs> All I remember is the worm. <laughs> um, and of course, I read The Wheel of Time. Um, I started back in like the middle 90s when the seventh book was out and I read all of those and then I had the the whole thing whereas you know I started so I have to finish so I've actually read the entire series I'm really looking forward to the television television series that's coming out um what else have I read I don't remember it's like I don't read anymore um <laughs> Nora Jemison N.K. Jemison uh I started with 100,000 Kingdoms and I've been with her ever since yeah, I've been really meaning to read some of Jemison's older books. I've read, I mean, obviously her Broken Earth series, but I mm-hmm. haven't gone back. Um, I really like Dream Blood. You should try that. Okay. I've heard good things about it. Well, I guess uh, past just reading, how did you move on from that and get started as a writer? Um, I first started writing seriously about 20 years ago. I was... I don't know. I just I had this idea for this story in my head and I started writing it and I was looking around for like, how do I get this read? I want to know what people think of it. And I discovered the Del Rey online writing workshop for science fiction and fantasy. It is still in existence, but it's no longer sponsored by Del Rey. And I wound up in a writing workshop with a bunch of people who have gone on to um, become published uh, authors like Elizabeth Bear and Ilona Andrews, and um, God, I can't remember his name. He wrote Something More Than Night, which is a brilliant book that people should read. (laughs) And uh, Charles Coleman Finley, who is now the editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Um, Just a bunch of people. And I, like, threw down the first chapter of a portal fantasy just to see what was happening. And I wound up in a group of people who all like really loved writing. And I did that for a few years, but then my anxiety kind of caught up to me and it made it really difficult for me to write. And I quit for years and uh, came back to it in 2014 by writing fanfic. And then I wrote Witchmark. Yeah, and so I, I had known that you had written fanfic, but I think I saw recently, was it Supernatural fanfic? Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I love that show. At least uh, I loved the first nine seasons. I kind of fell out of keeping up with it. I I fell out of watching it too. I think I stopped at the end of season 10. And I know that they just filmed their last episode a couple of days ago. Um, a lot of people were talking about their experience with Supernatural on the internet. And uh, that's when I had mentioned that I had gotten my start writing supernatural fanfic. Yeah, well, uh, if you're comfortable talking about it, what do you think it was about fanfic that got you back into writing, even with all of the anxiety? Fanfic has a lot of stuff that's already there for you. You don't have to think about the characters because the characters are there for you. You just have to interpret the characters the way you see them. Um, The world building is there for you. So you don't have to worry about the world building because it's there for you and you can use it, you can remix it, you can completely throw it away and write an alternate universe if that's what you want to do. Um, And it's pure fun because you can't make money off of it. And so when you start writing a supernatural fanfic and you put it up on an archive and you start getting instant feedback from people who are like, I really like this and I would love to read more of it, it kind of encourages you to keep going. And that's what I found is that um, writing fanfic basically gave me 
a really supportive group of people who were reading what I like to write and they like to read it. And so it kind of emboldened me to do something original. Yeah, I hear I hear that from a lot of authors, actually, that fanfic kind of was their first step, like on their long career into writing. Uh, and for most of the reasons you said, uh, it sounds like it's a great place to start. Well, also, almost a year ago now, I, I remember you ran a read-along on Twitter under the hashtag FitCraft, where you and other writers uh, went through, I think it was The Emotional Craft of Fiction by Donald Mass. Yes. What should I say about that? It was a lot of fun to do it. A lot of people wanted to do a different book, um, and I might. I just have to find the right book to do the discussion on. The FitCraft was basically... Um, the Emotional Craft of Fission by Donald Maas has a lot of information in it, but sometimes it can feel like it's talking past me. And I was like, what does he mean by that? And so what I was doing a little bit selfishly was I was getting a group of people together to discuss the various chapters so that we could all better understand um, the approach and to discuss the Emotional Craft of Fiction. And uh, I found it was really quite gratifying. Yeah, I think that's kind of like those online writing groups where it's just it's really nice to have a community where you can work through something together. I imagine uh, kind of that social support is a lot better than just trying to tough it out entirely on your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I find that there's a lot more group involvement happening on the side of writing. I mean, when you're writing, ultimately you are by yourself. It's just you and the page and your thoughts and your anxieties or whatever it is that's driving you to write. Um, but I have a bunch of Slack groups with writers in them where we kind of get together and we talk about day to day. It's like, oh, I have to write today. And it's like, maybe just try writing three sentences and see how that works. Um, and it's like, I came back from writing three sentences and it turned into a thousand words. And then we're like, yay. Um, <laughs> it's, it's great because it's your water cooler and your support group all at the same time. But because it's in a Slack group, you can kind of let your hair down a little bit more than you can, say, on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes sense. I guess out of that specific uh, read-along of The Emotional Craft of Fiction, is there any like key takeaways as a writer that you got from that book? Um, I think probably the thing that I struggled with the most that probably makes it the most valuable is the idea of emotional churn, the idea where if you hit a point in a story and you're like, what is this person feeling right now? Um, and the first emotion that you come up with is like the obvious one. Of course, anybody would be feeling that and digging deeper to the second emotion that they're feeling could be a little bit more interesting. Um, but digging down into the third emotion you're feeling, that is where the ignition kind of lies. I find it very difficult to do <laughs> when I'm writing, but when I take the time to actually kind of explore those emotions and get down into the, the contrasting or the oddly complementary feeling, I find that the writing is a little bit more powerful. And I imagine probably the extra level of complexity is conveying that all to the reader without explicitly spelling it out to them. Uh, but I mean, I guess that's writing. Well, uh, speaking of writing and writing craft, uh, reading through some of your older blog posts, it seems like you're constantly working on improving your writing process and you're actively looking to better your craft. Uh, so if you had the chance to sit down with younger C, given all that you know now, 
both about craft of writing and just how you personally work best. Uh, what advice would you give yourself? Um, I think the very first thing I would say is if you have a major anxiety disorder, go to therapy. <laughs> um, the second thing that I would say is um, definitely make sure that what you're writing is what you love. Don't worry about being on beat with the trends. Just write what you personally like because that's the most important thing. You have to be able to stand by what you what you are doing. And the best way to continue to hold enthusiasm for what you're working on is not to be like, what's fashionable right now? But what am I fascinated by? What do I love? What do I want to return to? What's the moment that I want to kind of crystallize on the page and to follow your enthusiasm? That seems like very solid advice, especially uh, maybe not you particularly, but it seems like a lot of people when they're starting out writing, they seem to think that you're like driven by the magical muse and like everything is sunshine and rainbows and you just have fun for hours a day while you're churning out the words. Uh, and it seems like you can maybe get closer to that if you find something you're really passionate about, but like it's definitely like a job as well. I would say that when you start writing, it really is like that. It is. It's sunshine and okay. rainbows all the time. You're following the muse. You're having a blast because you have absolutely no idea what you're doing. And it is glorious because you don't know if you're doing it wrong and you don't care that you're doing it wrong because you're just following this thing that makes you happy. And what I have discovered is that that is the most important thing is to write the thing that makes you happy. Well said. And I guess lastly, since I saw you mention on Twitter a while back, how effective is it exactly to switch your writing into comic sans? It's really weird. Um, what I notice is that when I'm getting frustrated with what I'm writing, I will switch to Comic Sans. I don't start in Comic Sans. It is the emergency ripcord that I pull <laughs> when everything is going wrong because I want to make sure that it stays effective. So I only pull it out when I'm really struggling. And it's just, my words look different when they're in Comic Sans. They look less official, less manuscript-like, more malleable. And then I have greater permission to just kind of do whatever when I'm writing in Comic Sans. It doesn't really count. I'm writing just to write. I'll fix it in post, whatever. It's very free. <laughs> yeah, it seems like one of those life hacks that sounds like it's fake at first, but then it's like surprisingly effective. Yes. Well, uh, we've made it this far, so let's dive into the Midnight Bargain a little bit. Uh, so do you have a pitch for us? Oh, gosh. Um... I should have prepared for this. Um, <laughs> it doesn't have to be official. Uh, pitch for the Midnight Bargain as I guess the closest I, I can get is that everybody knew that women couldn't be magicians. Um, everyone understood the explanations and everyone understood the reasons. But nevertheless, Beatrice persisted. Having read the book, I'd say that's fairly accurate. Um, well, so on the Hippie Witch podcast back in April, you said that your basic formula for starting a new book is to just pick one thing you absolutely love, one thing you're fascinated by, but probably need to know a little more about, and then something that just enrages you. So what were those things for the Midnight Bargain? Uh, the thing that I love, 18th century fashion. I kind of went into it wanting to do a thing with like big, gorgeous dresses so that I could sit there and describe the fashion 
for no reason other than the fact that I liked it. Um, the thing that I was fascinated by was the whole idea of this um, deep ceremonial magic where you would like speak in different languages in order to command spirits or whatever from the occult textbooks of the 17th and 18th century. I did a little bit of reading around. It's a little bit impenetrable. The language is a little bit old fashioned, but I got the general idea of what I wanted to do for the magic from like basically the Western mystery tradition. Um, and the thing that enraged me was at the time, a bunch of states made changes to their abortion laws to not like throw Roe versus Wade out the window, but to make obtaining abortions so difficult that they might as well have. And that made me really angry. <laughs> Yeah, as someone who uh, lives in the American South, uh, yeah, that's that's not surprising. Well, I think one of the things that kind of struck me the most about Beatrice's central conflict is that she doesn't have to choose between, say, following her dreams and a life of complete and total misery. She kind of has like a more nuanced choice. So she has to choose between practicing greater magic and living life of wealth and love and pretty much everything else she could possibly want, except for magic. Uh, so can you talk about why you took this approach? It's mostly what came out was just like the whole idea that you have to pick. It's something that I noticed when I was growing up, sitting in a room full of women, where they would talk about how their back, their careers took a back seat because they decided that they were going to have children. Um, about my own stepmother basically being like, thank God my stepchild is old enough to dress and bathe herself. And basically I can just kind of set it and forget it because if I had to deal with managing a child and trying to manage my career at the same time, I'd be screwed. <laughs> and it's kind of like, gee, thanks mom. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this choice has not gone away. And as a matter of fact, this choice has become even more stark with the coronavirus pandemic about what do we do with our kids? And because daycares and schools, um, they're closed, so the kids are at home, but you have to work. And if you're not working at home, what are you doing? What can you do? Like, this is a problem that women have faced to a less extreme degree for a very long time. And I was thinking about that choice between career and family, and I just wanted to illustrate it a little bit more with the idea of, well, you can marry this fantastic man who adores you, and you can have a family with him, and you can be comfortable for the rest of your life because he also happens to be loaded. <laughs> or... You can be a magician and you can't be with him. Only problem is, is that being a magician is what you want to do most in life. And you can't have both. You got to pick one. And so, you know, I kind of put Beatrice through hell a little bit. Just a little bit. Another thing that stood out to me about the book is how you approach the bargaining aspect of the magic system. Mm -hmm. uh, so usually when I read about mages bargaining with powerful spirits, the focus is always like primarily on making sure the spirit doesn't find a way to take advantage of you. Mm -hmm. uh, and while that's definitely touched on in the story, you also explore like, what if humans are the ones that don't uphold their end of the bargain? Uh, and I haven't really seen many stories cover that angle. So I was wondering why you chose to include that. 
Um, I was thinking about spirit summoning. I was thinking about like how you had to do these really intricate protection circles to make sure the spirit didn't escape the bounds of the space that they were summoned into or really bad things would happen or the whole thing about supernatural where you have your circle of salt, but then um, something happens to the salt line and you wind up in big trouble um, about the idea of spirits always wanting to do violence, always being malicious. And I was like, well, what if spirits aren't necessarily evil what if they just don't understand morality and what if what they really really want is to be summoned out of this nothingness this void of our outer darkness um to have sensory experiences and the thing is is that beatrice doesn't doesn't know that she is supposed to command and dominate her spirit so she made a deal with it (laughs) And and the spirit is just kind of like, you know, I, you know, I want some cake and I want to look at the stars and I want you to kiss a boy. And and uh, she's just kind of like, wow, OK, um, I guess we could try that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, definitely not the same approach as the salt circle being broken and disaster striking, because let's be real, the salt circle is always broken no matter what, no matter yeah. how much you prepare. But yeah, no, it was definitely refreshing to see that. Uh, it was a different angle, and there's plenty of room for exploring like very compelling conflict outside of just spirit wants to kill everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had a great Twitter thread and uh, also a blog post not too long ago talking about how you experienced writer's block. Uh, I guess without getting too much into spoilers, was there any point when writing The Midnight Bargain where you were stuck, and how did you push past it? Um, hmm... You know, there probably was a moment when I was stuck and my rose-colored glasses have come back to reflect on it as, oh, the Midnight Bargain was so easy to write. It just kind of flowed out of me like water. (laughs) And that can't possibly be true. And I know that if my friend AJ is listening to this podcast, she's laughing her butt off right now because if I hit a point where I was stuck, you can bet I complained about it to her. (laughs) (laughs) and so she remembers and i don't yeah i think that's like that with most big things you tackle though right like as difficult as they are in the moment like looking back you kind of everything is through those rose tinted glasses yes um and i also have to admit i hadn't actually heard the term silver fork fantasy before i encountered your books uh so and i think did you actually coin that term or was that around um i made it up because I was trying to come up with something that wasn't manner punk because the book that I wrote did not have a punk sensibility, at least not as far as I was concerned. So I didn't want to call it that. Uh, so I was trying to think of something and then I thought of silver fork or fashionable novels of the mid 19th century that were basically concerned with the lives and affairs of the upper class, um, the aristocracy and the way that they lived their lives. Um, at first it started with fascination, then it became satire, but it was still fascinated. And I was just sort of like, you know, this is kind of like what I write. I write books that talk about class differences um, and that have that kind of that lingering gaze on the extremely wealthy and what they do. And 
I just, uh, I decided that I had enough of that kind of that fascinated fascination with the manner and the behavior of the upper class that it was, it was a fit. I actually talked about this on Twitter the other day because <laughs> someone else asked me about it. Um, come on, brain. She wrote Swords Point. Um, oh, what? Uh, Ellen Kushner? Ellen Kushner. Yeah, she asked me about it. And so I talked about it with her. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, recently have uh, downloaded software to lock me out of most websites during working hours. So normally I would have probably caught that on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I've been locking myself out of Twitter after like um, in the morning, I will allow myself to post the ambiance of the day and a couple of other things that might, you know, give a reader of the timeline a moment of joy. And then I get out and go to work. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's uh, the smart way to handle it. And uh, I guess just one question from me uh, off the top of my head. So Silver Fork, the way you describe it kind of sounds like, uh, what's the term? Fantasy of manners is what I've heard before. Is yeah. that similar? Yes, very similar. Okay. Well, moving on just past specifically The Midnight Bargain, are there any books that you've enjoyed lately and you can recommend? Um, Books that I have enjoyed lately that I can recommend. Let me open my Kindle. <laughs> because <laughs> um, it's kind of my cheat sheet here. <sighs> All right. So definitely you guys should read The City We Became because I really loved it. In that same line, I have a book that's coming up next that is When No One Is Watching by Alyssa Cole. I have not yet read it, but I trust Alyssa. So I'm going to tell you guys to read it because I'm really looking forward to it. Um see i read a, a romance novel about a month ago by sarah mclean called wicked and the wildflower that um i i pretty much enjoyed um it's about uh a woman who as you can tell is a bit of a wallflower trying to like you know make that advantageous marriage that is going to keep her in the london social scene um which is where she wants to be. She wants to be in the thick of it um, with like friends and intrigues and, and going to all the right parties and all this other stuff. And she winds up meeting a man who is the king of Covent Garden. He's a criminal <laughs> and they fall in love, but I won't tell you more than that. Um, I have to say that if you step outside of science fiction and fantasy, you absolutely should take a close look at Real Life by Brandon Taylor. Um, this book is on the list for the Booker Prize. It deserves it. It's so good. I have read over and over and over again, say the first 25 pages, because it is a masterpiece of immersive setting and emotional craft where you get to feel things that the main character is feeling without them actually telling you what they're feeling. It's like really cool. It's also a little bit heartbreaking. Um, but you know, what can you do? <laughs> Let's see. Um, Going a little bit further back, I read Ninth House by Lee Bardugo. I recommend it. I'm going to warn you. It's dark. No, it's darker than that. <laughs> no, it's darker than that. But still, but still, I really enjoyed it. I cannot wait for the next one. Going back even further than that, I um, read Six Wakes by Muir Lafferty. This book has been out for a couple of years, but I read it a few months ago. And I really liked it. Um, 
I want to call it a locked spaceship mystery. <laughs> okay. Um, everybody wakes up. The staff of a um, of a spaceship that is going on a long journey with um, a bunch of passengers um, in suspended animation wake up. They're in clones. They have been murdered, and they don't know who did it. And it's just, it's great. Just, just, just do it. <laughs> what else should you read? You should read Ancestral Night by Elizabeth Bear if you haven't read it yet. Um, the sequel Machine is coming out. Um, I read an early draft of Machine, and I'm going to recommend that book as well. So get on that series, definitely. Um, the other thing that I want to recommend to people who are looking for something to read that may not necessarily be fiction. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Because I can't remember the author's name because I never remember the author's name. Um, oh, here we are. James C. Scott, Seeing Like a State. If you like political fiction, like your political fantasy or whatever, or if you're a fantasy writer who's interested in writing something with a political bent, get James C. Scott's Seeing Like a State and read that and, and have your mind blown by it. And then talk to me about it on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely uh, taking notes here because these books all sound like either A, something I've read and also loved, or B, something I've never heard of and I would very much like to read. Well, I guess moving past just uh, reading, so Soul Star and closing out the Kingston Cycle series, that's coming up relatively soon. I think uh, last book is February, is that right? February or March. I'm not exactly sure when the release date is. I'm sure they will tell me at some point. Okay, fair enough. If you don't know it, I feel a little better about not being confident on that. These days, it feels like uh, a fixed date is the odd thing. I guess with that coming up then, how does it feel to be done soon with a series that you've been writing for the better part of a decade? Um, I'm pretty happy with the Kingston series. I wasn't prepared to write a trilogy when I first started to write it, and then my editor was just kind of like, is there a sequel? And my mouth said yes, as my brain was saying, no, there's not a sequel. What do I do? Oh, no. <laughs> and, and so I wound up writing this book that turned out to be not what I was expecting to write when I first wrote Witchmark. Instead of it being a story about Miles and Tristan and their adventures, it ended up being about a country and about how that country changed through the hands of this small group of people who all happen and know each other, isn't that convenient, um, to go from a, a parliamentary monarchy to a democracy. No spoilers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in the course of three books. And um, I'm pretty happy with it. Um, I don't know what I would do to continue the story. So I'm just going to say it's done. And I am pleased. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like the trilogy seems to be the natural form for most fantasy, assuming it's not a standalone. Yeah. And it's always nice to see, uh, even if it's in a fictional world, uh, kind of a nation heading in the right political direction. Mm -hmm. So you've dropped some hints in one of your newsletters about your latest work in progress. Apparently, it's got a little bit of art history and a bit of a just society falling into complacency and some scandal. Is there anything else you can share with us? Um, what? 
let's see. Um, I should probably keep my next book a little bit of a secret. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and I believe is that that's out with Erewhon as well. Yeah, that's my okay. second book with Erewhon. Sounds good. And I'm not sure when it's supposed to be coming out. Um, I'm going to guess 2021 or early 2022. I'm sure they will tell me when the time comes. Yeah. And then uh, one of the last things I like to ask everyone is just, what's one thing you're excited about right now? Oh, let me think. Let me think. Because usually at this time of year, what I am excited about is the new figure skating season. And no. (laughs) And the other thing that I would be excited about is the new opera season. And no. (laughs) Um, Hmm. Something that I'm excited about right now. Uh, I could go back and say that I'm excited about the the Wheel of Time TV series. Every time I see a new teaser or like a person that they've cast or a piece of the set, I am all over it. I don't know what it is about the Wheel of Time TV series that has captured my imagination, but I am very, very excited about it. The other thing that I'm looking forward to is um, I've been playing World of Warcraft for a really long time, and they have a new expansion coming out called Shadowlands, and I know that there's a lot of complaining going on about the Covenants or whatever, but I am so excited to get into a whole new expansions with a weird lore. Um, I have been trying very hard to avoid all story spoilers. I have mostly succeeded. And um, I'm just basically going back and forth on which character I'm going to play first. And on October 27th, don't call me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have not played Warcraft or World of Warcraft in probably 10 years or so. So I think I made it through like the first couple expansions and that was about it. It's come a long ways, I've heard. Yes, it's very different. Um, but if you decide that you are feeling nostalgic for it, you can always play WoW Classic, which is... I'm going to say as close as you're going to get <laughs> to the original WoW um, with all of its weird little in- idiosyncrasies and strange quirks of personality. Um, <laughs> I haven't played Classic very much. I got up to about the mid-level doldrums and I couldn't push it any further. I went back to retail, but I'm, but I'm glad it's there. Gotcha. That's as, about as far as I ever made it, I think. I maybe got into, like, the low 40s or something. Yeah. Um, I find that... Um, I think the thing about WoW is that I joined an RP server, so my character was actually a character whose progress I was dram- dramatizing with other players, and that's where the appeal was, was playing with other people. <laughs> oh, that sounds so cool. Well, see, this has been so much fun. I'm glad we were able to have this chat. I'm glad we could chat too. You can find CL Polk on Twitter as CL Polk or at our website, clpolk.com. The Midnight Bargain is a delightful mix of wholesome relationships and rage-inducing injustice. If you're looking for your next great read, this may give you even more than you bargained for. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyinn.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. And speaking of Patreon, we're about to release our very first bonus episode. 
And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.